So yesterday was a pretty big day for Buffalo Bills fans. Um, first playoff win in 25 years. Some of you weren't alive when the Bills won their uh, last playoff game. And uh, one of my good friends, Jeremiah, he's a pastor at another church in the area. Uh, he's the, the biggest Bills fan I know. And so I texted him. I said, what are, you, what are you doing today for the game? He's like, oh, I'm watching with my family. And then I asked, what are you eating? That's what I really was interested in. What are you eating during the game? And he sent me a video of this red meat sauce he had made. And if you ever send me a picture of food you're making, just know that you're going to have to bring me some. And so I text him. I was like, oh, that looks really good. And I kept kind of like dropping hints. And uh, so he, after the game, he's, he only lives uh, not even a mile from me. So he's like, I'll drop, you, I'll drop off some for you to try. I said, yeah, absolutely. So he dropped it off. And, and, and I, as soon as I got it, it was already warm. And so I ate it like it was chilly. It wasn't chilly, but that's how I ate it. And, uh, and I loved it. It was just, for me, red sauce, and it needs to have a little acidity to it and a little kick to it and, and he had got it perfect and so I texted him I said Jeremiah that sauce is awesome I was like I love that and he texted me back and he said that means so much coming from you <laughs> and that's because my reputation as someone who loves food and has very strong opinions about food goes before me you know sometimes when somebody says something to you it's who says it that actually makes it mean something right you can tell a kid over and over to do something, but when their teacher says it or when their coach says it, all of a sudden it seems like it means more to them. I remember my wife Erin was learning to make Korean food. Uh, it was a big deal to her when I liked it, but <clears throat> it was a bigger deal when my mom liked it. When my mom, who is Korean, said, wow, Erin, you make that dish really well, I could see it meant more to her than when I said it. And, uh, you know, when, who says it often has a way of determining what it means to you. And when we look at these seven letters in the book of Revelation, we can't ever forget who's saying it. This is Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who sees all and knows all. And he has something significant to say to each of these churches and something significant to say to us. And we're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. I just want to see who wrote this letter. This is Jesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, real quick, what do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus was a large city uh, in Asia Minor. In fact, there's, uh, we think there was about 250,000 people living in Ephesus. That's four times the size of the town of Clay, or almost double the city of Syracuse. 250,000 people living in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was known for having a very large arena uh, that sat about 25,000 people where they could do outdoor activities and sporting events and stuff like that. Ephesus was home to a very famous temple, the temple to Diana, the go a false goddess. Uh, Ephesus was known for being a place of um, uh, uh, lots of sales and travel and people coming through. Uh, Ephesus also was the second largest city in the known world at that time, the capital and the premier city of Asia Minor. And so Paul or John, sorry, Jesus through John is writing to the angel of the church of Ephesus and he says this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now what does this all mean? Well, we learned last week that the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that John was sending these letters to. And Jesus is walking, we talked about this last week, he's in the midst of his church, he's walking in, in, amongst his church because it's his church. But this whole idea of the seven stars in his hands, and the seven stars symbolize something, and we don't 
completely know what it symbolizes. There's some disagreement. Some people think it represents the seven spirits of those seven churches or the seven angels assigned to those seven churches. And some people even think it represents the seven pastors in those seven churches. But the point is not what is the stars or what are the stars, I should say. The point is where are the stars? The stars are in Jesus' hands. And here we have Jesus standing in the midst of His church holding together His church and the leadership of His church or the influence of His church and He has something to say to us this morning. And what we're going to see in all of these letters is that uh, Jesus tends to start by introducing Himself and then He says, this is what I know about you and it's usually something good. Here's what I have a concern about and it's usually something bad. And then here's how I would like you to respond and here's the promise to you if you'll respond. Now, two of the seven letters, Jesus has nothing good to say to those churches. Two of the seven uh, letters, Jesus has nothing bad to say to those churches. But in most cases, he has something good and something bad. And with Ephesus, that's the case. He encourages them, but he also has a concern. And I love this idea that Jesus wants to encourage us this morning. Let's look at what Jesus says to encourage the church in Ephesus, beginning in verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In all seven letters, Jesus starts by saying, I know. And as I was reading that this week, I just thought it's so good for us to be reminded that Jesus knows. Sometimes you might feel like you're working hard, you're being faithful, you're toiling, you're not growing weary, and you're wondering, does anybody notice? Does anybody see? But Jesus knows. He sees you where you are this morning. He knows what you're going through. He knows the circumstances of your life. He knows the challenges that you're faced. Jesus knows. And he sees the good that we do. And if Jesus sees the good that we do, then we don't have to be busy promoting ourselves and trying to get other people to see us and notice us and wait around for a pastor to come and pat you on the back or somebody else to say well, how great you are, what you do, because Jesus sees and Jesus knows. And there's two things that Jesus wants to encourage the church at Ephesus about, and I think he can encourage us with these words this morning too, is that they were living right and that they were believing right. They were living right. How many of you think that would be a wonderful thing for Jesus to be able to say to us this morning? You're living right and you're believing right. They were working so hard. They were toiling. And when other people were growing weary, they were enduring. And I just want to say that as a church, I'm so encouraged by our church family and how hard many of you have been working. You know, here we are, it's 2021 now, and we're crawling towards normalcy, hopefully. But you don't have to look around the room to realize we're not back. We're not all here. And, and, and what's happened is, as a result, our teams, our ministry teams are thin. People are being stretched. People are having to serve more than normal. If you're here on a Sunday, there's a likelihood that you're probably serving in some capacity. And there's so many people in this church that I could point at and I can mention by name from the stage and say, thank you for your work, your hard work. You're serving more from the greeters to the ushers to the med screeners to the music and media team to the teams that clean between services and after services to the teams that are serving in the nursery so that you can be in here to the teams that are serving in Trinity Kids so that our kids can be well served. People are serving more than normal. <laughs> they're showing up earlier and they're staying later. 
And I just want to say to you, Jesus knows. He sees. I know and I see too. And I'm so grateful that we're a church that works so hard, that has patiently endured through 2020. And another thing I was thinking about, what I love about Trinity and the people in this church, is how patiently you've endured 2020. It's been tough, hasn't it? You can't talk to a pastor who won't tell you 2020 was the hardest year to lead and to serve. And I know business owners have felt that way, and teachers have felt that way, and people in medical professionals everywhere, everybody has felt the difficulty of 2020. But I'm so grateful because at Trinity, you guys have been so patient with me as your pastor and our pastoral team as we had to make decisions in 2020 that were hard. I kind of always said closing was easy, but reopening was hard. (laughs) When you want to close, you just say, no one come. When you want to reopen, it was a lot of work, a lot of effort. And there are a lot of opinions out there about when we should reopen, how we should reopen, what we should do when we reopen. And I know it was impossible to make everybody happy, but here's what I know. People were faithful. You guys were patient with us. You let us learn in a difficult year. And I'm so thankful for that. And that's what Jesus is saying here to this church at Ephesus. You've worked hard. You've endured. You've gone through. You've done so much. You haven't grown weary. But Jesus also said, did you notice that Jesus also told them, you also call out things that aren't true. Apostles who are false. Prophets who are false. And here's what Jesus is saying. You don't just live right. You believe right. You have good theology. You have good doctrine. And this is something that the church should be known for. A people who know who God is. Who really know who God is. Not who pop culture says who God is. Not who the latest book says who God is. Not what the latest prophecy says about who God is. But what does God's word say about who God is? And the church at Ephesus, they knew they had good doctrine. And one of the reasons, by the way, that the church at Ephesus had good doctrine is they had great pastors. Great pastors. Ephesus is a type of church you don't want to be the next pastor <laughs> at Ephesus. You don't want to fill the shoes of Paul and Timothy and John and Aquila and Priscilla. These were the church leaders in Ephesus. And if those names don't mean anything to you, they were the who's who of early church leadership. And they all were involved in shaping the doctrine, the theology, and the belief of the church in Ephesus. And I just want to say, if you're a Christian here this morning, your doctrine and your belief in Jesus and what you believe about God, it matters. It makes a difference. What we really believe about God always comes out in our life, in the way that we live. See, I can say I trust God in all things, but when I spend my resources in a way that indicate that I trust in wealth more, then there's a discrepancy between what I say and how I live. And how we live always ultimately reveals what we really believe, right? We can say one thing over and over and over, but eventually if we live a certain way that's different from what we say, then our doctrine becomes visible and it can be seen and exposed for what it is. One of my concerns is that as a church, we shape lives and hearts and minds that are filled with good doctrine. What do we actually believe about God? What do we actually believe about his word? How do we read scripture? I think one of the challenges is that there are always things shaping us, shaping our beliefs, shaping our... I saw something on Twitter this past week that said one of the challenges of the church right now is that many Christians' uh, doctrine or many Christians' belief... or Sorry, they said it this way. Many Christians are being more discipled by the nightly news than the good news. Many Christians are being more discipled by what they can scroll through on their phone than what they encounter in prayer when they're with God. 
And I'm telling you, in 2020, on so many levels, so much of the tension we've felt as a nation, so much of the tension that we've felt in our world has been, this is what I believe as a pastor, it's a discipleship issue. It's a discipleship issue. We have Christians that are being discipled by whatever they feed their hearts and their minds with the most, and it's influencing the way they live, what they love most, what they talk about most, what they're most passionate about, what they're willing to fight about, what hills they're willing to die on. And we have Christians whose doctrines are being shaped and their perspective on the world and their perspective on God is being shaped more by cable news of whichever channel they choose and prefer than it is by God's timeless word. Christians who are more interested in turning to their phones than in turning to prayer. Christians who are more interested in pouring over the latest prophecy online than they are in actually opening up the word of God and reading what God has to say to us. And so it's so important that we commit ourselves to growth and to discipleship. And it has to be more. Here's one of my biggest convictions as we move into 2021. It has to be more than Sunday morning, doesn't it? Is Sunday morning good? I think it's good. I'm so glad you're here. Is it enough? Not even close. I don't know about you, but I like to eat three solid meals a day. My wife might say I like to eat four solid meals a day, but it's none of her business. So I, like to eat, I like to eat three solid meals a day. But can you imagine if I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to eat one meal a week. <clears throat> one meal a week I'm going to eat, and then I'm going to be good for the rest of, my, rest of the week. It wouldn't work. I would get sick, right? Something, wrong, something bad would happen to my physical body. But there are so many Christians who that's kind of how they live out their spiritual life. I'm going to come to church and, and to be honest, a lot of Christians don't come actually every week anymore. It's, it's maybe they're going to come once a month or two times a month, and that's going to be their meal. And somehow that's going to sustain them and strengthen them and give them life and vitality in Christ. And I'm just telling you, it has to be more than Sunday mornings or you and I will not survive. The challenges that they were facing in Ephesus of cultic worship and false teaching and false preaching and false apostles and pressure from society, is that still here today? <laughs> Absolutely. And we're not going to survive with our faith intact if we rely just upon the Sunday morning gathering. So one of the things we're committed to at Trinity in 2021 is moving beyond Sundays and finding ways to connect you with each other for spiritual growth. And here's what we're doing. Today at noon, well in 10 minutes, if you're on our email list, you're going to get an email. Don't start doing it if we're still in service. You're going to get an email, and it's simply going to be called something like Spiritual Growth Opportunity Survey. It's, the, the title of it is almost as long as the actual survey, <laughs> so don't be nervous. Spiritual Growth Opportunity Survey. It's five questions. It will take you three minutes. And we're asking everybody in the church to do it. Now, if you're not on the email list, you go to our church website. There's a big button. Scroll down, Spiritual Growth Survey. We're asking every person to simply fill that survey out to help us understand better how can we serve you what do you need beyond Sunday morning? Maybe some of you are like, I really need a Bible study environment with other women. I really want to do that. Well, we want to hear that. Maybe you're saying, no, I just need a good Bible reading plan to do with somebody else. Let us know. We want to help you grow beyond the Sunday morning. So today when you get home, take the opportunity and do that. And if you cannot find the link or you don't get the email, reach out to the church office. It's our hope that every single person in the church will take this survey with us. So we have Jesus' encouragement. Second thing that we have here is Jesus' concern. This is probably one of the most haunting verses in all of the Bible. Revelation 2.4. Jesus has just encouraged them and said, you're living right and you're believing right. You're doing so many things great, but I have this against you. 
You have abandoned the love you had at first. And I think what scares me about this verse is I'm not sure the church at Ephesus believed this or knew this. I'm not sure they realized this. In fact, I bet a lot of other churches in Asia Minor at that time looked at the church at Ephesus and were like, man, they got their stuff together. Like, they're really doing good work. They're enduring persecution, suffering. They're calling out all those false prophets and false apostles. And, and Jesus says, yeah, but I can see that there's a problem. The problem is, is you've lost your first love. You can have all of these things. Here's what the church at Ephesus teaches us. You can live right. You can endure well. You can even have good doctrine and believe right and still lose your first love. That scares me because I think a lot of times we think, well, if we do this, this, and this, then we must be good with God. Jesus is saying there's something more. And this first love that Jesus is talking about, it's a love for God, but it's a love for God. Listen, it's a love for God and it's a love from God that is so, has so much work in your heart, is doing so much work in your heart that it changes the way you love others. So this is not just about love towards Jesus. This is about love from Jesus, love for Jesus, but also, listen, love for Jesus' people. And there's something in the church of Ephesus that Jesus knew, listen, you're still keeping all the rules and you still have all the form of religion and you still look really good from the outside, but somehow you're not doing it because you love me. You're doing it for a different reason and you're not doing it in a way that shows love to others. And I think one of the biggest, tra- one of the biggest tricks or traps for Christians is that we shift from doing things because doing things for God to doing things for ourselves. So we say we're doing things for God, but we're actually doing them because we think by doing them, it's going to do something good for me. I was talking with a friend this week who was uh, realized, he was actually telling me about, uh, we were talking about this show on Netflix called Cobra Kai. And he he shared this quote from it with me where someone says, uh, I I don't think I'll get this right exactly, but one of the characters says, there's a difference between doing right things because you think it'll lead to a certain outcome and doing right things just because they're right things. And he was sharing with me how he realized that maybe I've always been doing right things for God because I thought it would give me a certain type of life. It would protect me from certain things. But then when life got hard, how many of you know life will get hard and life will get challenging? And all of a sudden you begin to look around and go, wait a minute, this isn't working out for me. God, where are you? I thought I was serving you. I thought I was. And what it revealed was, was I ever really doing it for him or was I really just doing it for myself? We can do the right things, we can endure well, we can believe the right things, but if we do it because we think now God owes us something because we were good, then we've misunderstood the heart of the gospel, which is God owes you and I nothing, but he gave us everything in Jesus. And the question before us this morning is, if you lost everything, is Jesus enough? Job in the Old Testament said, though you slay me, still I will serve you, still I will follow you. Losing that first love. Another way that we lose that first love is we get so busy doing things for God, we, we, we forget to be with God. I'll just be honest, as a pastor, this is one of the biggest challenges for people who work in the church because we're always doing things for God, writing sermons and reaching out to people and counseling people and making plans and stuff. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, I haven't spent any time with Jesus. What's your plan in 2021 to be with Jesus? 
And then this concern that Jesus has is not just the love for God, but love for others. John, the same John who wrote Revelation, wrote a letter called 1 John. In 1 John 4.20, he said, you cannot say you love God and then hate your brother. And I think we got to remember that Jesus said what will make Christians distinguishable to the world is our love for one another. And I think in our society, in our world today, as we're so polarized right now over so many issues, it's such an opportunity for the church to rise up and love each other despite differences. To stand with each other and to support each other and to protect each other and to show the love that we have for one another because God has brought us together. And we all need that community. We all need each other in such a way. In fact, here's a quote from a book I read recently. that really spoke to my heart. It says that biblical Christianity is relational. Let me say that again. Biblical Christianity is relational. Thoroughly and foundational, it's relational. No one can live outside the essential ministries of the body of Christ and remain spiritually healthy. No one is so spiritually mature that she is free from a need for the comfort, warnings, encouragement, rebuke, instruction, and insight of other people. Did you hear that? No one in this room, including myself and our pastors and our leaders, no one is so spiritually mature that we don't need each other. Comfort, warnings, encouragement, rebuke, instructions, friendship. Everyone needs partners in the struggle. Everyone needs to be helped to see what they cannot see about themselves on their own. And I'm just so glad that you're here this morning and that, and that there's an opportunity to be a part of a people. But the question before us this morning is, what are we doing to love one another, to know one another? I know it's hard right now to connect. I, I get it. I'm so sick of not being able to just have whoever I want into my house. I'm a, I'm a hospitality guy. I'm an extrovert. My wife's the introvert, so she's, she's probably not suffering as much as me. But like so much of Trinity's, so much of what we do as a church and partly this is my fault, is built around food. (laughs) So much of what we do is getting around tables, having dinner parties, inviting each other into our homes. And I know there's lots of wisdom in being careful about that right now. I get that, and that's why we're not doing it. I'm sick of it. Like, I miss that. We need that. But we also have to commit ourselves. Listen, if it's not going to be what it was in 2019, instead of just sitting around wringing our hands and saying, when will it be like again, let's at least do something in 2021. Let's start connecting with people in some safe, smart way. But let's insist on doing this together because that's what it looks like to have the first love at work in us. It's our love for one another. And I'm so, I wanted to mention that we had a couple people who have recently, even during this COVID reopening time, our church has had multiple families begin to join and jump in, and we're so glad. We just brought in three new people into membership just a couple weeks ago, Bethany and Anthony Armelino and Carrie Flora, and God's continuing to build his family here, and we're so grateful for that, and this is what it means to embrace our first love. So after all of this, Jesus gives us encouragement, he gives us concern, and as the band comes, we're going to close Jesus' invitation. Look at what Jesus says at the end of this letter. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's what's at stake here. Jesus is saying your church is going to lose its presence, its influence, and its voice if it loses its first love. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
And here's how it ends. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Three things as we finish that, that, that Jesus says, remember, return, repent. Repentance always starts with remembering. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember God's love for you. Remember Jesus' love for you. Remember what he's done for you. And out of your remembering, return. Here's what Jesus is saying. You've forgotten how good Jesus is, and now you're chasing after other things. So remember the goodness of Jesus and turn away from these things and return to me and repent and respond and do the works you did at first, the works of loving God and loving each other. And for the Christian, the work beneath every work is loving God and loving others. And then he gives this final promise. I will grant to eat you. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is the tree of life? We got to go all the way back to Genesis. Remember Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin and and uh, they, they sin enters their heart, sin enters the world. And God has to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden that he had created for them. And it says in Genesis 3, God said, we can't let them eat of the tree of life. If they eat of the tree of life, they're going to live forever in this condition that they're in of sin and shame and nakedness and brokenness. And so he won't let them eat of the tree of life. And he did this because he knew that someday he would send his son to be on a different tree, the tree of death. On Calvary. And Jesus went to the tree of death and he paid the price for our sin and he died in our place. But the tree of life comes back in Revelation chapter 22 when John has the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. There it is again, planted by the rivers, the tree of life. And this is the promise that God is making to those who endure to those who love well, who love him and love others. Someday you'll be in my presence in the new heavens and the new earth and I will grant you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God where in eating the tree of life we will live forever but not in shame, sickness, brokenness, nakedness, insecurity, regret. We'll live forever whole, complete, loved, restored, bearing his image the way we always were created to. It's all because of this same Jesus who wrote these letters, these words to this church, and he's writing them to our hearts this morning as well. He wants to encourage you. You're working hard. You're doing well. You're believing right. Keep it up, but be careful. Don't lose your first love. Do it from a place of God's love and love other people. Let's pray.